It's good to be with you this morning. Um, good to be able to share in God's word with you this morning. And as we were singing the hymn of the Holy Spirit, that was my that was very much my prayer: is Holy Spirit guide my speaking, um, help me help me convey the truth of Jesus, um, help it to fall on our ears, and help us to have receptive hearts. And so I hope that that'll that will that will be the case today, um, because this is a very interesting passage that we're dealing with, um, and sometimes a very difficult passage. Sermons come about in lots of different ways, and uh, I thought I'd maybe just start a little bit this morning by kind of peeling back a little bit on the sermon preparing process, because maybe you don't know how I do that. Maybe, you know, for all you know, it's like Saturday night at 11 o'clock, and I'm on the internet going like, what can I do? Um, Obviously, one of the things that we regularly do is we ask our leadership, we ask the elders, hey, what are the things that you see and that you have discerned that our body needs us to preach on and we get kind of the wide broad strokes that way from from our elders Um, but a lot of times it comes out of either the there's material that I'm reading you know the books that that I'm reading or the things that we're sharing as a staff a lot of times it comes from conversations that I'm having with you the things that are going on in your life the conversations that we have about scripture and I go oh man that is a good word of God that everybody needs to hear um Sometimes, though, it comes through our spiritual practices as a leadership. One of the things that we do, um, the staff, every week, is we spend some time sitting with the Word of God in a practice called Lectio Divina. Um, And maybe you kind of think it's a duh thing for, like, the staff to get together and actually sit with the Word of God every week. But I can tell you that this is the first congregation that I've worked in that's done it as faithfully as we've done it. (laughs) Okay, a lot of times we just kind of assume that we're doing spiritual stuff all all by ourselves as staff and ministers because that's part of our job. And then, you know, when we get together, we'll do the business of ministry. But we've made it a real priority here to say, no, we need to sit in God's word together. We need to pray together. We need to listen to his spirit in order to be able to do this. Okay, and I just want you to know that that's what goes into our time of serving you as ministers and serving you as staff. Um, Monique and Vic and Daniel and I. We spend time doing that every week. And so this sermon actually, in the sermons that are going to come in a couple of weeks, came out of our time. We've been sitting in the Gospel of Mark doing Lectio Divina, um, this kind of taking it in short chunks, sitting with it in the silence, and then sharing, like, what do you see? We know what's, what's, what's striking you? Where do you see Jesus in this passage? What is this passage calling you to? Um, we've been working through Mark for close to two years now, I think. Something like that. I don't know. I was gone some. You were gone some. We did, okay, yeah. We've been in it for a long time. We're almost to the Last Supper. <laughs> okay? We're, we're, the conclusion is coming. It's really getting exciting. Okay? Yeah. Um, but I found that some, one of the things that happens when you sit with Scripture like that for a long time um, is that you start to see connections and you start to see themes that you don't always see if you're just kind of, you know, grabbing a piece here and grabbing a piece there and it just it's it's reading it as a story and letting it sit with you and letting God speak to you in it and it's very valuable and that's that's one of the reasons why this sermon and the the sermons over the next couple of weeks came to be is that out of out of reading this it's about a 4-day span here 3 to 4-day span here in the gospel of mark where Jesus from the time he enters the temple to the to the last supper um there are just some really interesting stories 
that, that a lot of times we don't see connected or we see them all separate. And yet there's this, there's this great theme that runs from when Jesus enters into Jerusalem all the way to the Last Supper about this idea of humanity being in right relationship with God and giving God what is his and what happens when we don't do that. Now this is not, there's no bait and switch here. We're not going to all of a sudden be like, and offering and sermon on giving and you know like that's not what this is about at all this is this is about lifestyle okay is what these sermons are going to be about and I think as we jump into um, the beginning of that what I want to do this week is to take us through the chapter of Mark 11 with an idea of looking at the difference between fruitfulness and barrenness because that's kind of what this whole story is about. And so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to listen for a little while, because I'm going to read the whole chapter of Mark 11 to you. And I want you to hear it together. I want you to hear how the pieces connect. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one's ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks out on the road. Others began to spread branches that they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Place your faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. Who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. 
You answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, because they feared the people, everyone held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. All right. For starters, let's talk a little bit about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It's the most anticlimactic thing I've ever seen in my life. Okay? You have to think about, like, like, let's use our imagination. If it was a movie scene, all right, you go get the colt, and a few people start to recognize what's going on, and Jesus sits on the colt, and then all of a sudden other people are starting to realize what's going on because it's Passover. And we've all seen this game before because here's what happens. Somebody proclaims themselves Messiah. It's Passover. It's the time of remembering God's liberation of his people. When they were oppressed, when they were slaves, he led them to freedom, right? Made them his people. Hey, guess what? We're under the Romans. We're enslaved. It's time for God to raise somebody up to lead us to freedom. A new Moses, a new liberation. Hey, look, here's somebody on a donkey. They're fulfilling scripture. And now people are starting to cut palm branches and lay coats down. And now we're starting to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Guess what's supposed to happen next? Anybody? This is an interactive sermon. Go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. You're supposed to run in there and take charge of the temple. Okay? You, all these people that are coming yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're getting ready to get into a fight. That's what they want to do. They, they are ready to kickstart the liberation of Judea. Okay? You're supposed to go in and kick out the Romans. Guess what? The Romans know this. They're not dumb. They've seen this before. Did you know that the Romans have an entire garrison of soldiers stationed right over in the barracks, right next to the temple? How convenient, right? Okay, so if you imagine this scene in your mind, somebody's like, you know, cutting down a palm branch and somebody's picking up a sword and somebody's saying, Hosanna, who comes in the highest? And somebody else is saying to arms, they're getting ready to come do this thing. And you can almost see it happening like a Mexican standoff. Here we come, right? Everybody's just looking at each other going, okay, what's going to happen? All the people are here. They're like, is he going to go ahead and make the move and say, secure the temple, throw out the unrighteous people? And the Romans are like, are you going to do this? And Jesus goes, that's getting late. Let's go. <laughs> what on earth? It sets the stage. Everything that's going to happen in the next two or three chapters of Jesus in the temple is going to be all about Jesus who knows God, who is God, who knows what God is up to. And knows how this should go and has expectations. The true expectations of God. And those coming into conflict with the expectations that everyone has set up for who Messiah is supposed to be, what God's supposed to be up to, and what righteousness is supposed to look like. So you have real righteousness going up against perceived righteousness. You have true fruitfulness going up against the appearance of of righteousness and fruitfulness. 
And that's what this story is all about. That's why at the very, very beginning we get this thing about the fig tree, okay? And and the fig tree is a weird story, okay? And the fig tree is a strange story. And the fig tree even kind of makes Jesus look a little crabby, okay? Because let's be honest, there's one way to read this and be like, it was the morning and Jesus was hungry and maybe Jesus is like me in the morning. This is my second cup, okay? I've already down one of these before we even left, okay? I'm working on my second one during sermon. There will probably be another one in the afternoon at some point, okay? So maybe Jesus needs his figs like I need my coffee, and he doesn't find it. And, I mean, there was, like, one of the sources I read was even remembered somebody doing this as, like, a live-action thing. And Jesus almost, like, angrily, like, going, we no one ever eat from you again! And then goes, like... Did the disciples just hear me say that? And the disciples were like, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> Calm down, buddy. <laughs> okay. Somebody get him some food. Um, there's a way to read it that's like that. And there's a way that makes him, him look very un-Jesus-like. Okay. And you know what? Maybe, there is, maybe there's some truth to that. Jesus was a person who was hungry, just like you and me. But here's the thing. Mark splits this fig tree thing right around the temple. He does that on purpose. The fig tree story has the clearing of the temple right in the middle of it. And he does that on purpose. You can't actually understand what this fig story is about without looking at the temple. So let's start at the temple first. Jesus goes into the temple the second day. He's already been in. He's already kind of raised everybody's expectations that he's going to take over the temple and he's going to drive out the unrighteous. And what does he do the next morning? He goes into the temple and he drives out the unrighteous. But it's not the ones that everybody thought that he was supposed to drive out. Again, expectations, right? These don't match up. Real fruitfulness versus... The appearance of fruitfulness. But really, there's barrenness there. Okay? So look, look at this. Jesus comes in, and he drives out. He, he literally does take control of the temple. He literally does hijack the temple. Okay? He does what Messiah is supposed to do. <laughs> he just doesn't do it in the way that everyone expects him. He says, yes, I have come to save, and yes, I have come to bring salvation, but not in the way that you expect. It's in the way that God intends. And Jesus says, one of the ways I'm going to bring salvation is I'm going to drive barrenness out of your life. And I'm going to expose it for what it is. And I'm going to call you to fruitfulness. Okay? It's important to look at what he says here. Okay? As he's teaching, it says, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for who? All the nations. But you have turned it into a den of robbers. Okay. Let's start with this word robbers for a second, okay? This word does not just mean thief, okay? We say, oh, Jesus was, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Actually, he was crucified between two robbers. This is important, okay? Actually, in the Gospel of John, he makes it even more clear, okay, because he connects them to Barabbas, and we'll get into that at another sermon, okay? But... But robbers doesn't just mean somebody who steals. Robbers means someone who is a supplanter, an overturner, a rebel, an enemy of the state. Okay? 
Rome doesn't crucify common thieves. We don't do that. We don't, we don't put you up there for stealing a loaf of bread or a few bucks, okay? We'll just kill you. That, it's, it's easier that way. It's simpler that way. Okay, crucifixion is to make a statement. It is so horrifying, it is so shameful, it is so painful, it is so degrading that the whole point of it is to say, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. Well, that word for the people hanging on the cross is the exact same word that Jesus uses to just say, you have made it into a den of Robbers, rebels, overturners, supplanters, people that are enemies of the institution. Not the, not the institution of Rome, but the institution of God's kingdom. See, here's the thing. Jesus isn't mad at them because they're skimming money off the top of the sacrifices, although that's bad enough, okay? Let's just be honest, all right? We're coming to sacrifice to God, and you're like, charging extra money so that you can, you know, line your pockets. That's terrible. But moreover, what they've done, they're not just stealing money. They've stolen the identity of the temple and overturned it and and made it for their own purposes. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. My house is supposed to be God's house, the temple, is supposed to be a place that is open, that welcomes in everyone, that says, come and know God, be known by God, worship him, be made right with him, be reconciled with him, right? That was the whole point of the temple. It was, it was, it was that it was a place where God could be made open to the people. And he says, what have you done? You've, in essence, closed it off and made it difficult for people. You've made it unfruitful. And instead, you've taken its fruit for yourself. And now you're unfruitful too. That's how we have to read the fig story. Okay, so, so think, about, think about the temple, and now think about the fig tree. Okay? Now, I'm working with Steve Whitmer on this, okay, because Steve's been to... Uh, Steve's been over to Israel quite a few times. So, I mean, he's my, he's my wise source on this. Okay, so if, you, if you're like, that doesn't make any sense to me, talk to Steve. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, here's what we know about the fig tree, okay? Let's talk about the fig tree. One, Jesus knows that it's not the right season. He knows that it's out of season, okay? He knows. All right? So he's not... He's, He's not, he may not be a morning person, but he's not that out of it, okay, that he doesn't know what's going on. He knows that this is out of character, okay? And he sees a fig tree in full leaf. And this is, this is where I got my knowledge repository from Steve, okay? The fig trees in the Middle East, as I understand it, what, what we're talking about here, this type of fig tree, they go to fruit concurrently with the leaves, it's not like it's not like us where 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 you, you know like if we're if we're going hunting for blueberries right now, okay? We saw leaves a long time ago, and now there's blueberries, or there's a there's a vineyard out behind where I live, you know, and we saw leaves a long time ago. Now then we saw little itty bitty little things, and now they're kind of starting to grow into grapes, and it'll still be a while before they're ready to pick. 
the fruit and the leaves are coming at the same time. So it logically, if you're seeing leaves, you, you should expect that there's going to be fruit there, even if it's out of season. Even if at first glance you're like, wow, that's peculiar. But if you see the growth, you should see the fruit. But this image is more than just an image, okay? It's more than just a physical thing that's happening. There's also spiritual imagery here. This image is rooted in the Old Testament prophecy of the kingdom of God. Psalm 1, the righteous person, is rooted in the reality of God. And they do what? They bear fruit in and out of season. They are full of leaf and they bear fruit. That's Psalm 1. There are references to this in Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, some of the minor prophets. The righteous identity of God's people is visualized as a tree that is in full leaf and bears fruit, regardless of what season it is. It's peculiar. It's supposed to be peculiar. It's supposed to make people say, what is that? I want to go take a closer look. Okay? And that's what Jesus does. Jesus says, wow, that's peculiar. I'm going to go take a closer look. So even though this is out-of-season blooming, it's unusual. Logic and prophecy says where there is a sign of fruitfulness, even out of season, you should find fruit. But it's a ruse. It's a hoax. The outward evidences are a lie, and there's no real fruit there. And so what are we supposed to do with Jesus' reaction and curse? Okay, Without minimizing it, it is severe. I think it's severe on purpose because it's doing a point. Okay, Jesus basically says, may you never fool anyone again. May your outward appearance reflect your inward barrenness. And we know that by the next day, the fig tree is withered. And Mark specifically puts that it is a supernatural withering. It doesn't wither like things that we see where they aren't getting enough water and the sun beats down and the leaves start to shrivel. And then it goes to, it, it's not like when we forget to water the plants in my office or whatever, right? And it's, this is supernatural. It comes from the roots up. And that in and of itself is showing something. Is that, is that the problem is what they're rooted in not their outward circumstances, okay? And I, I hope the connection between these two stories is clear. Jesus will not tolerate inward barrenness dressed up as his abundant life in anything that claims to be under his lordship in all of creation. Okay? And that may be a hard word for us to hear because what we really, really want is we want Jesus to take us as we are. And he does take us as we are. Okay? If, if the tree was honest about where it was at, you know, because there's other parables about fig trees that aren't blossoming and aren't blooming, and you, you have the gardener say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to water it, I'm going to prune it, I'm going to do things, I'm going to try and help make it fruitful. The reaction to Jesus would not be this way. But the tree is a parable of a people, a people who have laid claim to an exclusive identity and promise but are failing to actually embody it. And it's really, really easy when I say that for you to go like, okay, one, let me just be very, very clear. Mark is not anti-Semitic. This is not a polemic against Jewish people. 
Okay, This is not actually directed to any particular time and place because the word of God is much bigger than that. Okay, But at that time, the temple had become a place of outward righteousness and inward barrenness. And anywhere, any time, any place that the people of God lay claim to an exclusive identity and promise. Have we done that? Do we say that we are God's people bought with his blood for the purpose of being his disciples and proclaiming him to the world? Okay. Then God's not going to tolerate us showing all of the outward signs of that without actually, or claiming that outward identity without the fruitfulness that comes with it. He did not give us that for us. He did not give me that title so that I could feel good about myself that I'm saved. He did not give me that identity so I could be like, isn't it so great that I'm a child of God? He gave me that so that I could nourish the world around me. The people that are coming hungry, looking for fruit. Looking for something different. And if they come looking at our lives... Okay, and they don't see it. It is actually a curse to God, not a blessing. And you have the temple, the center of this promise in this that looks busy and full and bustling with the work of God, but it's really a compromised entity. It's full of selfishness, it's full of rebellion, and it's full of elevation itself at the expense of God and others. And a great deal of fear among those who are in control and a desire among those who are in control to maintain their control at all costs. In short, it represents the reality of anyone who would claim to be a child of God, but live in such a way that they don't embody the character of the firstborn son, Jesus. We may be able to fool folks at a distance, but not up close, and we will never be able to convince our true creator and sustainer of our authenticity, unless we're really willing to surrender to him and bear fruit. It's a hard word, I know, okay? I'm glad that the story doesn't end there, okay? The last two sections provide us a little more insight. First, Jesus has this conversation with the disciples. And, and again, it's one of those ones that we've taken out of context a lot of time. We, we, we just take it and, and we, we, we go, okay, so if you've really got faith, you can move a mountain, tell it to throw it. Which mountain is he pointing at? When he says, you could move this mountain. He's pointing to the temple mountain. Okay, it's in the context of fruitfulness and barrenness. If you were, if you were really, really surrendered to the idea of God and surrendered to him in faith and in prayer and said, this temple mountain that represents outward fruitfulness looking but inward barrenness needs to get thrown down. It doesn't matter how big that looks. God can do that. You have to look at it in context. And then Jesus comes right back and says, you got to believe, not doubt. But if you believe wholeheartedly, you will have what you've asked. Anything. Anything. 
not anything, anything, but anything, anything that is inhibiting you from being fruitful as God intends you to be through the prayer and the belief that God can do that, he will help you do that. That is his desire. His desire is for you to be fruitful. So if there are things that are standing in the way, doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how difficult they are, if you come to him and keep coming to him and saying, I need this, it looks like a mountain, but I need it to be uprooted and thrown into the ocean, God, he will do that because he desires you to be fruitful. That's the point of this passage. It's not this big wide I can do anything I want in Christ. It's about fruitfulness. And so there's hope for us. If we go, you know what? I've spent a whole lot of time creating a facade of holiness, but inwardness, like, I, I, I don't have that. Ask God. He will give you what you need. And then there's a challenge on the other side of it. The religious leaders are so paralyzed by fear when Jesus asks the question. They have encountered a real prophet of God in the flesh. The Son of God is standing before them. And they're so clouded by fear that they cannot even talk to him. They cannot even converse with him. They can't even give him an answer. They just go, we don't know. And how often when, when we are faced with the reality of our need to repent of barrenness and surrender and embrace God's fruitfulness, do we just kind of like step away and hide and say, I don't know. Grow more fig leaves. Grow more leaves. <laughs> Look better on the outside. It's not ironic to me. It is very ironic, but, but also very humor-laden to me that the first time that humanity steps out on their own and says, we're, we're going to take command of our own destiny and that it all goes very, very wrong, what is the first thing that they do? They hide behind fig leaves. <laughs> leaves never fooled God. Not then, not now, not here, not in my life. Growing more leaves to look better was never what God intended. For you and I. It actually, it actually lends no purpose to our lives. If, 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 if the Christian life for you is about looking good, I need to disabuse you of some notions today. <laughs> All right, I hope I have lovingly, okay? But that's not what this is about. This is about us surrendering to a holy God. Jesus is trying to teach us this simple lesson the more we are trying to generate our own righteousness or our own fruitfulness, the more our actual barrenness is going to be exposed. And we may, try, we may continue to try to hide it, but God is going to be all about exposing our barrenness. He's going to say, may your outwardness reflect your inwardness. Because what he really wants to do is he really wants to give us life from the roots up so that we can be truly fruitful. And he definitely wants that outwardness to reflect the inward life. But if we're playing games, he's going to reveal it for what it is. He loves us too much, and he loves this world too much to do otherwise.
And so giving God what he wants and giving God what is his, it doesn't start with things like monetary resources or time or skill or even priority. It starts with this simple phrase, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? That's what Jesus says. I'm the true vine and you're the branches. Do you want to be a fruitful person? Stay stuck to me. Surrender to me. Live your life out of me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Fruitfulness isn't busyness. It isn't believing all the right things or doing all the right things. It is daily rooting ourselves in God's reality. Surrendering ourselves to being who he has created us to be. And surrendering ourselves to his direction. Not trying to be any more or any less than we are. And trusting in his leading day by day, even when that leading is very difficult. And this is a, I, I, church, I understand this is a hard but necessary word. And especially for those of you who are like visiting and check like your first Sunday, you're like, whoa. Are all the sermons like this? Uh, work with me. Like a couple weeks ago, we had a very uplifting one, right? Out of Romans 16, like just how thankful I am for this body and how much I see you growing. But any sermon can make us feel better about ourselves. The word of God is supposed to do more than that. The word of God is supposed to call us to the truly abundant life and to move us to follow our Jesus. It's to transform us, right? That's how we begin to give God what is truly his. And so I pray that his word will find a home in your heart. I pray for you right now, if you are feeling barren in your life, if you feel like, you know, like I'm just kind of going through the motions here, like it is time to remove that notion of the Christian life from your life. He desires to bring real life in you. It's time to talk with us. It's time to, it's time to be open about that, you know? It is. Because we all have pieces of our life that need the attention of God to be fruitful. There's nobody here who's like, oh yes, no, I'm a great example of fruitfulness. You know, follow me, not Christ. We all need that. We all need his life-giving love. If you feel far away from him, if you're like, I don't, I don't even know what it means to be rooted in God's reality, I invite you to come and spend some time talking with us. I invite you to come and share in this time with us and get to know what it looks like for people who are who are wrestling. We don't do it perfectly. We don't, not even close, okay? But people who are trying to say, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in our world today? What does the next right step look like? What does the next right choice look like? Who am I and whose am I in Jesus? It's a journey toward fruitfulness, and I invite you to join us in that, okay? Be blessed this week.